Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Happy Friday to each and every one of you. Hard to believe um, that uh, tomorrow um, is the last weekend in February, and before we know it, at the start of the uh, coming week, we will be into the month of March. 2021 certainly has been uh, moving by quick, but that's to be expected, uh, especially for for those of us who are um, getting up there in age. Not saying that is a is a bad thing, but that's just what happens the older we get in life, uh, how time itself moves very quick. But um, I have missed being with you all. Um, I was originally supposed to have been on the air with you guys last night, but long story short, I had some uh, uh, technical issues, and um, hopefully they have been corrected to where I, I won't have any issues uh, with getting this uh, podcast uh, segment uh, completed. I tell you, is is technology um, can be sometimes, you know, yes, it's great, but at times it uh, has a mind of its own to where we don't know what to expect uh, one day after the other. <laughs> uh, of course, I remember my dad said once when he was growing up, when a technological advancement came along, it was one of those things that happened maybe once every 10 or 15 years that was really uh, revolutionary. And of course, in this day and age, technology changes all the time, and sometimes that's not a bad thing, but then we have to ask ourselves how much change needs to take place in a short period of time, technological-wise, to where where technology moves so quick, where, you know, us humans, how, we either uh, get it or we, um, or we do get it, but it may just not happen right away, so... Bottom line is technology has a mind of its own, so I'm going to keep my fingers crossed and hope that um, I don't have any glitches during this uh, podcast session. But here we are um, discussing um, the final part of uh, part two, and I say part two because after this podcast session, we would be moving on to part three being the trial. So as for part two, the final uh, leg of this uh, second part uh, to uh, Bruce Chadwick's I Am Murdered, George Wythe, Thomas Jefferson, and the Killing That Shocked a New Nation. We learned from uh, the previous podcast about uh, William Wirt. We're now going to be learning about the man, the other half of uh, George Wythe Sweeney's defense team. So, who else can come close to personifying George Wythe's judiciary expertise? Well, it just so happens that it will be a Virginian. It makes sense. And it's, a, it's not just any ordinary Virginian. He is a prominent man of a, from a prominent family. His name is Mr. Edmund Randolph. You know, whenever I think of Randolph, um, there are a fair number of things that usually come to my mind. Uh, the first is uh, just the, um, the legacy of the Randolph family in Virginia. After all, Thomas Jefferson's mother was a Randolph, so he is directly he was directly related to them. Uh, the Randolphs owned a lot of land in Virginia. They were up there with the Carters, the Custises, the Lees, and the Birds. Uh, a handful of uh, prominent, powerful uh, families who controlled not only the political system in Virginia, but also um, land ownership. And of course, at one time, uh, before West Virginia became what we know as West Virginia, West Virginia itself was part of Virginia. And whenever my wife and I go to um, Elkins, West Virginia, for her uh, college alma mater's um, homecoming or uh, during the spring, 
their, um, her uh, alma mater is Davis and Elkins in Elkins, West Virginia, and it's um, ironic that um, where her college is located at is in none other than Randolph County, named after the Randolphs. After all, the Randolph family did own land in what we now know as uh, present-day West Virginia. And about six miles down the road from uh, my wife's alma mater is the town of Beverly, which is named after Beverly Randolph, who was uh, governor of Virginia during uh, colonial times. So no matter how far you travel in Virginia, even if it's over the state line into uh, West Virginia, the Randolphs, believe it or not, folks, owned land that went as far west as uh, the Shenandoah Valley, and into present-day West Virginia. But, of course, if you take a look at the Carters from uh, Shirley Plantation, uh, as well as the Northern Neck, uh, Robert Carter, or let alone Robert King Carter, being Robert Carter I, he was uh, one of the wealthiest um, land landowners, in, uh, not just in colonial Virginia, but in uh, colonial America. During his time, he owned land that stretched as far west as present-day Ohio. After all, Virginia did go as far west as present-day Ohio. So anyways, um, yes, to be a Randolph, it is a uh, noble honor. And after all, when you're a Randolph, you definitely are up there with the Custises, the Carters, and the uh, Lees, and the Birds. So anyways, um, we should find out more about who Edmund Randolph is. After all, he was born in the year 1753, that would mean he was uh, 10 years younger than Thomas Jefferson. And it would be fair to say that those two men are um, cousins. Um, I should also point out that Edmund Randolph was born just before the French and Indian War broke out, or as the Europeans refer to it as the Seven Years' War. He was uh, born in uh, Williamsburg, and he attended the College of William and Mary. What an appropriate fitting. After all, there's only one college in Virginia, and there's really only one college still in the South at this time, and that is William and Mary. He is the son of John Randolph and is the nephew to Peyton Randolph. I'll mention Peyton Randolph's name here momentarily because um, he um, was a very, very prominent um, political figure uh, when it came to uh, being in Philadelphia when the Second Continental Congress convened, starting in May of 1775. Now, I'm sure many of you ha are wondering, when you live, or when you come from a very high-profiled family, say like the Randolphs, for example, would it be fair to say that um, life is good, if you're especially in the uh, aristocratic gentry? Well, you would hope so, but it is fair to say that um, that the gentry isn't always perfect. They, too, have issues like any other family. So my next question to you all is this. Although Edmund Randolph's relationship with his father remained strong from childhood through college years at William & Mary, there would be one particular course of action that sadly forever changed their family ties. Okay. You know, Edmund Randolph, um, by around the time uh, 1775 um, comes around, he's 22 years old. And as I said earlier, his uncle Peyton goes to uh, Williams, not to Williamsburg, but to Philadelphia that same year in May of 1775. And he will be there for at least a good year. Now, I think it would be fair to say that Uncle Peyton is a patriot. 
after all, if he's not a patriot, then he has no business uh, being in Philadelphia, although there were um, a handful of delegates in Philadelphia who were still uh, very uncertain about uh, what course of action to take. But nonetheless, Uncle Peyton is an ardent patriot. Well, it turns out that Edmund Randolph is an ardent patriot. After all, he, uh, like many other ardent patriots in Virginia, would have been against uh, taxation without representation. But besides being against taxation without representation, Edmund Randolph goes as far as serving as a staff aide to General George Washington in 1775. And I should point out, folks, that it's in 1775, uh, or rather in uh, late June of 1775, when the Continental Congress finally um, decides to name George Washington as the commander of the Continental Army. Uh, for those of you who uh, were with me um, a while back when I uh, discussed uh, Christian de Spigna's book, uh, Founding Martyr, um, The Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's Forgotten Hero, what many of us don't realize is that there was um, an interim um, commander of the Continental Army, and that was Dr. Joseph Warren. However, um, right before Bunker Hill, the Battle of Bunker Hill commenced on June 17th of 1775, he was told that at some point uh, a transition would take place. But little did he know that um, it would be someone who would um, lead the Continental Army the rest of the way through thick and um, challenging times. But unfortunately, George Washington never got to meet Dr. Joseph Warren in person. By the time he arrived to Massachusetts, uh, the battle had already been fought, and Dr. Warren sadly lost his life on the battlefield. So for those of you who um, have have not heard about Dr. Joseph Warren or read this book, I strongly recommend that you do so. But anyways, uh, yes, it's a great honor for Edmund Randolph to be um, serving as George Washington's um, staff aide up in um, Cambridge, Massachusetts. But as 1776 comes around, there is a greater unpleasantry. I mean, Who's to say that 1775 may not have been rocky in the Randolph home, but in 1776, the big bombshell happens, or let alone the straw that breaks the camel's back. Edmund's parents become bitterly opposed to war against the crown. So if they are against this war, that would make them loyalists. In other words, their loyalties lie with king and country. Now, remember this, folks, if it's one thing to show your loyalty to the crown, but are you going to stay put in town? You could if you wanted to, but at the same time, you probably would, would be ostracized by many in the community who would have had uh, the exact uh, opposite feelings. But that's not to say that if you were a patriot, you could have been ostracized from your community as well. We must keep in mind, folks, that... Um, when it came to uh, loyalties and family homes during this time, not everyone was on the same page. Just because you were a patriot, it didn't mean that uh, everyone else in your home was in favor of uh, separating from the crown. So what did Mr. and Mrs. Uh, John Randolph do? They departed for England, and they never returned to America. That also means that they disowned their son. You know, sadly, we do hear of stories, in, even in modern-day times, where family members don't speak to one another, regardless of uh, the reasons. But this was nothing new 
leading up to separation from England as well as after we declared our separation. And families were torn apart by um, these um, unforeseen circumstances. I often wondered if I was alive during this time. You know, yes, I've always said if I were had been alive during that time, my uh, ties would have been to that of being a patriot. I would have been totally against taxation without representation. But on the other hand, what if I did have members of my household who were um, loyal to the crown? So, you know, you could say all you want that, oh, I would have been on this side, but that's easier said than done because you never know what um, what you could have been uh, facing in your home in terms of uh, being uh, disowned, ostracized. So sadly, it happened, especially to Edmund Randolph. So his father's departure, or let alone betrayal, left him without an adult male figure whom he could look up to. And to make matters worse, his uncle Peyton died in Philadelphia in the year 1776. And he died not, too, not long before um, the body at Independence Hall came together and officially declared its separation from England. And Peyton Randolph, right before he died, folks, was the uh, head chairman of the Continental Congress. I should point this out because had he not died, whose signature would have been the grandest on the document, Peyton Randolph's. As a result of his death, who became the new chairman of the Continental Congress? Mr. John Hancock of Massachusetts. Now, John Hancock, on the other hand, is a, was a fine man. He was a wealthy merchant, and while I will admit that, yes, he did have ties to England, but by the time uh, the Stamp Act was passed and all these other oppressive uh, pieces of legislation came around that um, involved improper uh, consent, or let alone no consent, um, then Mr. Hancock's loyalty switch from being um, from no longer having any allegiance to the crown to uh, that of uh, patriotism. I point that out because John Hancock was the only one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence who actually saw King George III be officially coronated as King of England back in 1760. And of course, who would have thought in 1760 that anybody would have uh, wanted to take up arms against the crown, especially uh, the 13 colonies? So when Peyton Randolph dies, uh, Edmund Randolph is really... Um, facing uh, some tough challenges. Of course, he can't sit around and feel sorry for himself. So what does he do? How can he go about making a name for himself? Well, at age 25, he became the mayor of Williamsburg. I don't know of very many um, young people his age who would become mayor of their town or city, but he um, had that uh, unique honor. And in 1779, he was elected to the Continental Congress to uh, serve in Philadelphia. And then, eight years later, in 1787, he became a delegate to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, where he and James Madison proposed the Virginia Plan, which uh, established three branches of government. Checks and balances, legislative, executive, judicial. judicial. Why, is, why are checks and balances important, folks? because they keep one branch from not being allowed to have too much power over the other. Everybody's got to be in unison. At least that's what we would always hope. So, come 1789, 
two years after the U.S. Constitution itself had been um, officially approved as the legal binding document to our um, nation's republic, what, uh, what would become young Edmund Randolph's crowning achievement? He became the nation's first attorney general under George Washington's administration. Now remember folks, when George Washington becomes president in 1789, there's only a, um, a few departments, Secretary of State, Secretary of War, and the Treasury, and the Attorney General's office. We don't have Secretary of Education just yet. We don't have the Agriculture Department. Um, the, sec the Department of War might as well be the equivalent of the Department of Defense, and even Homeland Security, for all we know. So, Edmund Randolph has a very uh, unique honor, to say the least, of being um, the Attorney General. Of course, Thomas Jefferson is our nation's first Secretary of State. Alexander Hamilton is the Secretary of the Treasury. And Henry Knox, who was one of George Washington's uh, most faithful servants in terms of uh, military commanders and uh, comrades throughout the American Revolutionary War, was the Secretary of War. And I should, and of course, John Adams is the Vice President. So what I should note here, folks, is that you know, George Washington's from Virginia, Thomas Jefferson is from Virginia, Edmund Randolph is from Virginia, Alexander Hamilton, New York, John Adams, Massachusetts, Henry Knox, Massachusetts. We have an equal balance of northern and southern states representing the government. I think that's important at this time because leading up to 1787, there was so much tension between the states to where... Um, sectional and regional interests became greater conflict. So this is a great way for George Washington to uh, help unify, maybe not so much the country, but unify people from, um, from all, from north and south. On the other hand, Edmund Randolph doesn't remain uh, Attorney General forever. In a few short years, when Thomas Jefferson resigns from the Secretary of State position, Edmund Randolph gets promoted. And this promotion, in his eyes, will lead to great fame and recognition. You know, it would be easy to think that, okay, I've got this promotion and everything's going to be grand. Well, it turns out that uh, Edmund Randolph is going to experience a fallout that is not going to be very pleasant. And it's going to impact a lot of other people around him. Exactly what national event caused problems for Edmund Randolph to where he and George Washington had an enormous fallout. And what I mean by enormous, one that um, in the end did not involve um, any, where reconciliation was um, not achievable or um, could not be um, attained. Well, when George Washington becomes president, for starters, there are uh, major challenges. And I, and I will name a few of them here in brief detail, but um, what I do know is that around 1795, and this is one year after um, the infamous Whiskey Rebellion had taken place in 1794, an incident occurred where Mr. Randolph had been found to be in regular correspondence with a French minister named um, Jean-Antoine Joseph Fauché. This involved American politics and international affairs. Okay? All right, so we've got Mr. Randolph discussing... Um, with the French minister about American politics and international affairs. That may not seem like anything harmless, but the problem is that 
the there are multiple dispatches in other words multiple reports this was not just a one time one time incident where it was just one conversation or a letter that was sent um mr randolph had tried to bribe thousands of dollars from the French in order to main, maintain stability in Washington's administration. Why is stability an issue? Well, by around 17, well, for starters, in 1789, not long after Washington becomes president, you have a very, very bloody revolution in France, or what's known as the French Revolution. The lower classes of society have been excluded and left out from so much of everyday life in France that they can no longer, they no longer can stand it. They can no longer stand to see the monarchy and the, um, the uh, what do you call it, church officials and anybody else of high class status in society have power. So what does this revolution do? It overthrows the king and the queen, and those who do survive and are found guilty are, um, are sentenced to um, long-term periods of jail time, and then many are guillotined, meaning that their heads were cut off. That's what happened to King Louis and his wife. Luckily, Thomas Jefferson uh, left France in plenty of time before all this happened, because, and I say that because he was ambassador to France from 1784 up until the late 1780s. But not only were matters in France bad, but France and England are um, at w pretty much at war with each other, and they are also making life on the seas very difficult for Americans in terms of shipping commerce, uh, let alone exporting goods to um, foreign nations. So there are those in Washington's administration who would like to side with England, and then there are those who would like to side with France. Well, Alexander Hamilton would love to side with England. Thomas Jefferson would actually like to side with France. George Washington says, hey, we're not going to side with either one. We're going to remain neutral. So George Washington has um, instituted um, neutrality, where we're not going to take a side. Obviously, Edmund Randolph does not like that. The scheme that where he was so concerned about maintaining stability in the Washington administration revolved around intending revolved around wanting to protect French trade interests in the United States. While all that may seem um, relevant in his eyes, it wasn't relevant to George Washington. Why? Because Washington was never consulted about this concern. After all, folks, Washington's the commander-in-chief. You don't go behind your commander-in-chief, especially George Washington, I think many people should know that by now, but history has uh, taught us now that there ha that there were uh, people who um, knew Washington well and were friends with him at one time who unfortunately saw their friendships at one point in time um, disintegrate because of uh, improper actions. So by the time Washington receives the dispatches, he became very angry with Randolph to where resignation was inevitable. Washington doesn't have a lot of time to put up with crap, I can tell you that much. After all, he was the commander of the Continental Army. Do you think he had time to put up with um, crap back then? No. Um, there might be a reason why Washington is, in the, is first in the hearts of his fellow countrymen, because he put the needs of his country first before his own. In other words, Washington was not the type 
who probably went around and said everything that was on his mind. Now, if this incident was bad enough in 1795, the real straw that broke the camel's back was um, from what happened a year earlier in 1794 with the um, infamous Whiskey Rebellion in Pennsylvania. George Washington was very, very adamant that the Pennsylvania distillers pay taxes on whiskey because the distillers saw the need to not want to pay tax. They thought the tax was unjust, unfair. Um, they basically wanted to uh, do what's called nullification. They wanted to nullify a federal measure. Well, a well, uh, people living in a state, for example, may not like a federal law that was passed, but that doesn't give the state legislature the right to nullify it. Of course, when I think of nullification, I think of John C. Calhoun, um, a prominent South Carolinian who um, later on down the road in history will be the first to uh, challenge federal laws. So in 1794, with this Whiskey Rebellion, George Washington uh, leads an army of about 14,000 men into Pennsylvania to put down the rebellion. Where Edmund Randolph is opposed to George Washington has to do with um, the grounds on, in regards to power. Edmund Randolph believed that George Washington did not have the power to take, uh, to take over the army, not just the U.S. Army, but to take the army into Pennsylvania just to ensure that the uh, state uh, collected all of its taxes. You know what? The, these were desperate times, and you know sometimes desperate times call for uh, firm measures to ensure order and stability. After all, George Washington doesn't have time to sit back and let um, and allow rebellions to take place or insurrections to where the country's uh, national security is at stake. And not to get off track, but I think if George Washington had been alive and saw what took place at the start of last month, he would have been beside himself. I know for a fact that, that George Washington would never in a million years have allowed for that kind of um, activity to have taken place. But after all, George Washington was um, far, far much smarter than, um, than the last um, commander-in-chief we had in the White House. But that's as far as I will go there. Um, I would prefer to uh, get back on uh, our primary focal point here with Edmund Randolph. But I'm sure many of you all listening would agree with what I said a moment ago. Now, to top it all off, Edmund Randolph wrote letters to French diplomats during and after the Whiskey Rebellion, criticizing President Washington from all angles. Okay, it's bad enough that Edmund Randolph doesn't like what George Washington's done, but does it give him the right to make matters worse by writing to French diplomats left and right? Oh, I don't, about why he doesn't like George Washington? No. And, do, and don't you all find it crazy to think, okay, I've written these letters. Nobody will tell on me from France. I hate to say this, folks, but even in the 18th century times, people had a way to find out about what was going on behind someone else's back. In other words, nothing was secret back then, too. So just when Edmund Randolph thought he could trust the French diplomats, the French diplomats, in turn, were the ones that actually gave the documents to, to Washington's um, top-level um, cabinet members who were serving under him. 
It's amazing how information can fall into the wrong hands, and yet when it gets into the right hands, then somehow justice itself can be done. So after George Washington dismisses Edmund Randolph, did anyone of prominent status come to his defense? No. And that list included James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, and even Vice President John Adams. Randolph's enemies were found in both political parties, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. So, to put it all in a nutshell, Edmund Randolph burned bridges from all different directions. You know, yes, you can have disagreements or um, differences in opinion with uh, someone from the other aisle, but you also should be careful about how far you um, take those differences, because after all, if you say too much that's on your mind, you'll end up burning a bridge with someone to where they may not come to your defense, or they may not come in, come to your, um, come on your behalf to say, "Hey, I support this measure." So basically, Edmund Randolph failed to understand the concept or the message that even a handful of us can be guilty of from time to time. Don't say everything that's on your mind. So. How is Edmund Randolph going to uh, rebuild his um, image? Well, by the time he's 42 years of age, his political career has pretty much come to an end. Future doesn't look good, but he's got to find a way to um, make up for, um, for the debacles. He goes about returning to Richmond, and he returns to his old law practice, where he takes on multiple cases and becomes successful to where he had one to two cases in court per day, and besides all this courtroom success, Randolph himself organizes various committees to improve life in Richmond, like convincing city um, officials to hire extra constables, whom are debt collectors, for its police force, along with getting more guards for the county jail. Now, while all this success is good and it might seem like there could be a good rebound, what happens in 1797 to Edmund Randolph that wasn't good? During his time as Attorney General, he had misplaced almost $50,000. That was a lot of money to misplace then, and it still is today. While he wasn't accused of theft, a judge found him guilty of wrongdoing for not properly managing the misplaced money. So in 1804, two years before George Wythe died, the federal government made Randolph pay the full amount, but instead he had to rely on his brother-in-law, Wilson Carey Nicholas. And the Nicholas family was very good friends with, the, with Thomas Jefferson and his family. As a matter of fact, the Nicholas family even helped um, Jefferson become um, president of the United States. Um, matter of fact, Philip Norburn Nicholas, who will be the uh, prosecutor in the uh, trial against in the trial of George Wythe Sweeney, was um, the lead member of the Virginia committee that helped um, Jefferson get elected president. So, anyways, uh, Edmund Randolph is related to the Nicholases. His brother-in-law being Wilson Carey Nicholas is the one that pretty much has to uh, help him um, get all this debt sorted out. But by the time the debt gets finally paid off, it didn't happen overnight, folks. It took actually... 50-some years before it was all paid off. It wasn't until 1856, and Edmund Randolph is already long gone. He died in um, 1813, so, you know, it took 50, almost a little over 50 years for all that to be sorted out. 
So what kind of cases had Mr. Randolph taken on going into 1806? He took on appellate cases, which dealt with money and land. But these cases, while yes, they are good in terms of providing some sort of steady income, they don't, lack, they don't have a whole lot of publicity. So in order for a lawyer back then, just like today, if you really want to attain fame or perhaps rebuild your image, why not start trying to take on cases that were more high-profiled? So, let me ask you all this. Has Edmund Randolph known George With for a long time? Yes. Their friendship dated back to the 1770s, but in large part, uh, Edmund's father, before he uh, betrayed his son, um, really was the one that actually introduced um, his son to George With, along with... Um, other key uh, people in the Williamsburg uh, community, like Patrick Henry, for example, and George Washington. But Edmund Randolph um, and George Wythe had known each other for uh, since the 1770s, and Mr. Randolph himself was one of the first people to be at Wythe's bedside as he was dying. And as Wythe himself was dying, he turned to Edmund Randolph for revising the will, which pretty much cut out, well, wouldn't say pretty much, altogether it cut out uh, George Wythe's grandnephew completely because the first words that um, Mr. Wythe said after he had regained consciousness from being poisoned was, I am murdered. And he eventually knew one week after the poisoning who had done this and obviously wanted his grandnephew removed altogether. So, you know, if Edmund Randolph and George Wythe are, know each other well, wouldn't it make practical sense, though, to think that Edmund Randolph should have enough common sense to not go as far as to representing George Wythe Sweeney? I would think so, but remember, Edmund Randolph is in a real um, state of um, desperation. And when one becomes desperate, sometimes they're not always in the right state of mind. They will do things that, that others see as unbecoming, um, suspicious, um, lacking clear um, strategy, or just lacking uh, proper judgment. But Edmund Randolph's desperate to make a name for himself. And he needs a slam dunk case that will... Um, turn out to favor his outcome, but will also make him uh, well-recognized once again, like he had been from earlier glory days. So, Randolph's representation of George Wythe Sweeney will be seen as the golden ticket for redeeming all past misfortunes, as well as acquiring future clients of high-end status. So, just like William Wirt, I think Edmund Randolph is trying to chase the almighty dollar, and along with just wanting to uh, expand him, his image or expand his name to where others will come to him in the future, regardless of circumstances. It's one thing to attain fame, but once again, attaining fame cannot always come with the right um, reasons. Sometimes people sadly attain fame for the wrong reasons, where their image can be... Um, torn down, or in some cases ruined altogether. 
Were many people angry at Edmund Randolph's decision to defend George with Sweeney? Yes. One man in particular I found to be of um, significance to discuss was Mr. James Monroe. James Monroe had disliked Edmund Randolph for almost 20 years. And why for so long? What had Edmund Randolph done to piss James Monroe off? Well, remember in 1787, the Constitutional Convention, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania? James Monroe was 29 years old in 1787. He had already served in the House of Delegates. He even was a member of Congress in Philadelphia. James Monroe has lots of political experience. After all, he served as a colonel in the American Revolution to George Washington. James Monroe desperately vied as a desperately vied for uh, becoming a delegate candidate. He was snubbed by none other than Mr. Edmund Randolph. It turns out that Mr. Edmund Randolph chose a fella who had no national political experience. It turns out that man was Dr. James McClurg, who was one of George Wythe's doctors. Yes, Dr. McClurg was a very, very high-profile doctor and well-respected, but why would you send someone with minimal political experience? I don't know. It could have been a game of uh, favoritism or some form of patronage, but I could see how James Monroe had every right to be angry because I know for a fact that if he had gone to Philadelphia, he would have signed the Constitution. He would have made his presence known, and he probably would have been a part of that Virginia plan. But don't worry, folks. James Monroe did get his redemption in the sense that his political career probably had far more significance than Edmund Randolph's did. So, William Wirt and Edmund Randolph, George Wythe Sweeney's attorneys, were frowned upon by many in Virginia for taking on this case. You know, I will say this too. If, if George Wythe Sweeney didn't have the two... Um, the two most high-profile attorneys representing him, if it had been John Smith or Tom Jones representing him, I'm sure that those individuals would have still been frowned upon. But when you already are of someone who is of a high-profile status, or let alone coming from a high-profile family, doesn't that raise a red flag if it's not for the right reasons? Absolutely. Were William Wirt and Edmund Randolph good friends to one another? Uh, no. No. Well, for starters, neither one had ever worked together in a courtroom setting. But William Wirt, you know, if we thought what Edmund Randolph did to George Washington was bad, I think what William Wirt did to Edmund Randolph is just as bad or a little bit worse. William Wirt decided that it was appropriate to go behind Edmund Randolph's back and publish newspaper essays mocking him which caused further tensions between both men. Well, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't one think in today's time that if something like that happened, that the attorney who um, decided to mock the other fellow attorney should get completely removed from the case, or let alone maybe have his law license revoked for a couple of months? I would think so, but of course... Um, I, I don't know if they if there was such a term as disbarment at this particular time. But after all, folks, you know, William worked, as I said from the previous podcast, he knew how to um, 
He knew how to charm people. He knew how to um, convince those who were undecided in reaching a final decision on a case or just a final decision with anything that was of, uh, that was uh, hard-pressing or hard-pressed. But William Wirt obviously is a very ambitious man, and he's all about chasing that almighty dollar. So if you're that egotistical in ch wanting to chase the almighty dollar, well, guess what? I think it'd be fair to say that you probably don't care about how your actions impact other people, especially if it means mocking the other lawyer who is um, representing the same client that you have. So here's Edmund Randolph trying to restore his personal image while William Wirt, as I said before, is seeking out the almighty dollar in pursuit of high profile, in pursuit of, a, of uh, taking on a high profile case that which he hopes would result in a slam dunk victory. Both men are charting their own legal courses with this um, not so good exception. An I, me, myself mentality. So in other words, these two men aren't working together. They're both um, trying to restore. Their, one is trying to increase and, and enhance his image. And then you've got another man who's, who is going beyond his limits to restore his image. But at an expense that will um, make or break his relations with the state of Virginia. Was Thomas Jefferson beside himself over George Wythe's death? Yes, he was. For one, Jefferson had looked up to Wythe as a father-like figure, but more importantly, Jefferson knew Wythe as a man of high integrity. He was revered by everyone and yet didn't have any known enemies until his death. Well, it's like I've said before early on, folks. Who would want to kill this man? I mean, who would want him dead? He never um, said anything hateful about someone else. He never engaged in dueling. He never engaged in, um, what do you call it, in, um, in actions that were, in, in, in the eyes of some, as being childish or inappropriate. I mean, he never did anything to burn a bridge with someone. But, as I've said before, not all families are perfect, and there's always that one black sheep in the family who can make life miserable for others and can uh, turn his or her backs on other family members. And obviously, that's what happened with George Wythe Sweeney, the grandnephew. So yes, Thomas Jefferson is very much beside himself. And he won't be present at the trial, but he will be uh, continuously informed by letters from Richmond Mayor William Duvall. And I should point this out too. I don't. Many of you all probably wouldn't know this. Um, I've known about it for a while, but um, there. Are, I know there's got to be more than one story behind this. But my wife and I learned about this one story uh, two years ago when we went to Williamsburg for a day trip. That when uh, George Wythe died, Thomas Jefferson did receive some of his um, prized um, gifts that Mr. Wythe himself wanted, although. Sweeney uh, did steal rare books of his uh, great uncles that were supposed to have gone to uh, Jefferson. Jefferson received um, drinking glasses. These were not ordinary drinking glasses. What Jefferson had done with these glasses was that he sent them to Philadelphia. He had a connection there, and he requested that the glasses be melted down. Uh, they, these were silver glasses, 
and be um, turned into something um, something more um, unique to his uh, style. Well, it turns out that those glasses got um, molded down into um, into silver or what we call pewter, and they became um, what we know now as Jefferson cups or Jefferson mugs, but preferably Jefferson cups. So whenever you see a Jefferson cup, thank um, George Wythe. And I say that because George Wythe gave Jefferson the cups that he um, had um, had transformed into what we now know as Jefferson cups. Now, on uh, September 2nd of 1806, this is the day that George Wythe Sweeney's trial will officially begin, and there will be a handful of witnesses that will be uh, taking the... That will be uh, there. Um, witnesses range from Doctors Fauci, McCall, and McClurg uh, to Richmond Mayor William Duvall, and then there will be George Wythe's personal maidservant Lydia Broadnax, whom survived the uh, poisoning. I would certainly hope that uh, Mrs. Broadnax, Miss Broadnax, would be allowed to share um, her uh, version of the story, because after all, for one, she is the only survivor, and two. She knows everything that happened. I would hope that by uh, I would hope that um, they would allow her to testify because she is the one that um, can pretty much lead uh, the jury to decide whether or not George with Sweeney uh, should deserve to um, spend the rest of, year, of his years in life behind bars or get um, hung. After all, many in Richmond would want him hung, not just in Richmond, but throughout the state of Virginia and elsewhere in the United States. George Wythe Sweeney's trial will gain much publicity as people uh, came from everywhere in hopes to see the accused be found guilty with death by hanging. Well, there we have it, folks. We have finished part two of this book, and when I'm on the air again with you all next, we're going to be discussing part uh, three being the trial. Now, before we get into the actual trial, we're going to be, um, also, we're going to be talking about a variety of uh, things like autopsies, the history behind autopsies, uh, the history behind um, arsenic and how arsenic poisoning itself um, evolved throughout the years. We're also going to learn about um, why the doctors were so convinced. I mean, we talked earlier on about why the doctors were convinced Mr. With contracted cholera when in fact he truly was poisoned. So, Continue to fasten your seatbelts because uh, part three, being the final part of this uh, book, is going to be very, very adventuresome. I don't know if that's a good thing, but but I can assure you this much. You all will still learn a lot of uh, valuable information. There will be some information that will come as a, as a bit of a shock. And some information we that we will learn may not be to our liking, but we will also have to understand that what, that the outcome that that was uh, reached was also something that was based upon the times of the uh, of uh, American society, or most notably in Virginia society during the 18th century, 18th and into the 19th century. So thank you again for listening. And uh, for those of you who um, know of people who want to uh, podcast, tell them to come to Anchor. It's free. The opportunities are limitless and the end results go beyond the sky ceiling. Thank you, and y'all have a great weekend. Take care and stay safe.